The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Welcome to Scorebox. These are your headlines. The U.S. prepares to ban Russian investment and further crack down on the country's banks and state firms, whilst the EU targets coal and shipping in the bloc's fifth round of sanctions against Moscow. We are proposing to take our sanctions a step further. We will make them broader and sharper so that they cut even deeper into the Russian economy. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky delivers an impassioned address to an emergency meeting of the UN Security Council, calling for a Nuremberg-style trial of Russian war crimes in Ukraine. Know that you can admit that if there is nothing that you can do besides conversation, we need peace. Ukraine needs peace. Europe needs peace. And the world needs peace. Asian markets follow Wall Street lower as Fed Vice Chair nominee Lyle Brainard says the U.S. Central Bank is prepared to take stronger and more rapid action against inflation. The 10-year Treasury yield hits its highest level since May 2019, while the dollar trades near a two-year peak. Paramount importance to get inflation down. Accordingly, the committee will continue tightening monetary policy methodically through a series of interest rate increases and by starting to reduce the balance sheet at a rapid pace as soon as our May meeting. And China's services sector contracts at the fastest pace in two years amid COVID restrictions, while officials in Shanghai say the current outbreak is at its most difficult and critical stage. Right, a very good morning, everybody. Good morning, Karen, by the way, and good morning to Jeff. Uh, NBC News has learned that Western allies will today announce a swathe of new economic sanctions against Russia, targeting its largest lenders, state-owned enterprises, uh, Kremlin officials, and their family members. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki uh, later confirmed that new measures will, quote, cause immediate economic harm and come in response to the apparent atrocities in Bucha. Reports suggest Alpha Bank and Spare Bank will be targeted in the latest sanctions. The European Commission has proposed banning Russian coal imports worth some 4 billion euros. The move would be the first instance of Europe restricting Russian energy supplies going into the arena of hydrocarbons. The Commission President Ursula von der Leyen also indicated future sanctions could target Russian oil imports. Speaking to our colleagues stateside, U.S. Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm said the atrocities in Ukraine are forcing Europe to reconsider its energy security, with the U.S. becoming one of its key suppliers. They're having all of these discussions that are heading in that direction. I mean, you know, this attack in Bucha was, I want to say it really flipped a page about the horror of what um, Putin is up to. And I think that it is causing our European allies to really reconsider what they are doing and where they are getting their fuel from. Of course, we're in a privileged position in the United States because we are not importing now any Russian oil or gas. The conversations that we're having 
about diversifying and moving in new directions, about energy efficiency, heat pumps, et cetera, particularly for those uh, countries that are very reliant, like Germany, on natural gas, are very encouraging. But we have to make sure uh, that we are also doing what we can to help our allies. And that's why the United States has been a, a recent supplier, certainly, of liquefied natural gas. Well, Sylvia joins us with more. And Sylvia, of course, uh, as far as Germany is concerned, Hungary is concerned, other countries, they just cannot go into hydrocarbons. But why not? Why can't they go into oil and gas uh, when other countries, such as in the Baltics, have weaned themselves off very successfully, very quickly? It's all a question of numbers here at this point, Steve. But what's important at this moment in time is indeed that the fact the fact that the commission proposed that coal will be banned, Russian coal will be banned from the block going forward. And this is their first announcement when it comes to energy sanctions against Russia. And indeed, for those that have so far criticized the EU for not trying to punish the Russian economy where it would hurt it the most, this is a step in the right direction. But at the same time, indeed, when it comes to energy sanctions, this was actually the easiest step for the EU. And I want to show you some numbers in this regard. For instance, according to the Eurostat, back in 2020, the EU imported 19.3% of its coal from Russia. But then when you compare that number to oil and natural gas imports, you can see that it's significantly lower. When it comes to oil, for instance, the EU imported 36.5% of its oil from Russia that same year. And natural gas, that reached um, as much as 41.1% in 2020 as well. So it really tells you that for the time being, if the EU wanted indeed to go ahead and impose energy sanctions, coal was going to be their first step. But the reason why the commission, Ursula von der Leyen specific, its president, announced yesterday that this is their intention, that this is what they want to do next, is because of the atrocities that we saw, the reports that we saw coming over the weekend in terms of what has happened in different Ukrainian cities that have previously been under the Russian army. Let's take a look at what von der Leyen had to say in this regard. These atrocities cannot and will not be left unanswered. The perpetrators of these heinous crimes must not go unpunished. The European Union has set up a joint investigation team with Ukraine. Its task is to collect evidence and investigate war crimes and crimes against humanity in Ukraine. It is important to sustain utmost pressure on Putin and the Russian government at this crucial point. The four packages of sanctions have hit hard and limited the Kremlin's political and economic options. We're seeing tangible results. But clearly, in view of events, we need to increase our pressure further. And uh, Ursula von der Leyen also said yesterday that this, is my, this might not be the end when it comes to sanctions that the EU will impose on Russia. She also said that they are indeed working on further sanctions when it comes to oil, not to be implemented at the moment, but something that the Commission is working on at the moment as well. And uh, we also heard in this context from the EU's foreign affairs chief, uh, Joseph Borrell, and he did explain why the EU is indeed going ahead with a further with a fifth package of sanctions against Russia. We are not targeting Russian people. We are targeting the Kremlin, the political and economic elites, the ones who are supporting Putin's war in Ukraine. The aim of our sanctions is to stop the reckless, inhuman, 
and aggressive behavior of the Russian troops, and to make clear to the decision makers in the Kremlin that their illegal aggression comes at a heavy cost. So this fifth package of sanctions will be debated today among the European ambassadors. It will be important to see what sort of comment will emerge from that meeting because it, because it will indeed shed light on whether this fifth package of sanctions will indeed be approved for the time being, Karen. It is indeed just a proposal, but nonetheless a significant step in terms of what the EU is doing against Russia. Sylvia, thank you very much for that. I'm just going to weigh in with some comments on coal because obviously this is an industry I've looked at for many years. And if you look at some of the major exporters away from Russia, it's Australia and it's Indonesia. And naturally, given the partnership between Australia and a lot of European allies, you'd think that would be a natural source. But there have been issues with floods and wild weather in recent times that makes it difficult to try and increase those uh, exports or the capacity that exists at this stage. And also, if you think about it from the ESG perspective, Australia was uh, copying a lot of criticism for its approach to uh, keep on with its uh, fossil fuel industry. You think back the last couple of years and how strong the Australian approach has been. So one, does it prompt a shift in thinking around ESG to try and meet uh, existing needs? Uh, The second point around Indonesia, I mean, this is a a country too that has its own challenges in terms of increasing production. So not, again, the most reliable source and it's much further away than, of course, where Russia is. So Um, alternatives, not an easy uh, thing to come up with. Look, this tallies into the other conversation, which we spent a lot of last year talking about is why is Germany using so much coal anyway? Why has it steadfastly refused to more quickly uh, move away from coal? I mean, it's doing so, but at a glacial pace, some have accused it of doing so. Uh, For instance, one of the few things that uh, the British could be quite proud of at the moment in terms of their energy uh, mix is the fact that they decided to phase out coal a lot longer, uh, a lot earlier uh, than other nations in Europe. In fact, complete phasing out by two or three years time. So, It does expose the fact that the Germans are still reliant to a great degree on their electricity generation on coal, albeit uh, trying to reduce it now uh, at a much more accelerated pace. But it's taken a war in Ukraine to perhaps increase that that, that pace at which it declines that coal usage. But you think about how the negotiation goes. We want more of your product now to sustain our needs, but we're going to increase our decline, accelerate the decline, and we won't put the product down the track. But can you just invest in the future and expand your mining facilities to meet our short-term needs now? Uh, this is a point. It needs a rethink. If we're talking about ESG requirements and how the, the world is for going sure. to approach it, we need some certainty for, what, a decade at least around some uh, of these production And, and Jeff, I think it's absolutely fascinating. We'd look at the changes that are going on on various parts of policy amongst the EU. It is Germany that stands out front and centre on every single level with what we've seen with the recovery plan, with the energy transition plan, now the remilitarisation, with the loosening of austerity. These are meteoric changes to the Russian economy across a whole swathe of issues, not just related to Ukraine. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, given the period under uh, the previous Chancellor where Arguably, um, a lot wasn't done. It was a period of stasis, if you like, and the relationship with Russia only got stronger. It is quite a radical departure from that agenda. And um, Mr. Schultz has quite a heavy agenda now, doesn't he, to try and uh, handbrake turn Germany in a new direction where it increases defence spending and reduces its reliance on uh, energy coming from Russia at this stage. I just wanted to make another point, though, picking up on what Karen had to say. Um, 
you know, the biggest uh, improvement, if I can use that in inverted terms, that we've seen in recent years to the contribution to the greenhouse gas debate has actually been COVID. And it's been a recession in recent years, the great financial crisis. Um, and in a sense, there is almost an argument, um, be careful what you wish for at this stage, because we're going to play a, a bit of um, uh, Leon Cooperman a little bit later on, the billionaire who was on CNBC US yesterday, who pretty much thinks we're headed into recession in the United States in 2023. Um, and in spite of whatever uh, increase in coal usage we see through this period as countries try to wean themselves off Russian oil and gas. It'll probably pale in comparison in terms of its impact on the environment when we look at what ultimately could happen in terms of energy conservation and reduction in energy use if we actually pitch into that recession globally in 2023. So very interesting uh, where we go economically here and probably has greater bearing on the climate argument than what we're seeing at the moment over Russian energy, guys. Yeah, and I'm going to say it again. I think all of the things we're seeing at the moment cast a huge shadow and perhaps a reinterpretation of the success of the decade and a half of the Frau Merkel era. I said it during her reign, and I'll say it again now, whether it's on foreign policy, whether it's on domestic economy, whether it's on the financial situation and whether it's on the, the speed of moving from hydrocarbons as well, there have to be questions asked. And I know people don't like to question the Merkel era. There have to be questions asked about the, the wisdom of some of her policies uh, and indeed how maybe they've benefited Germany in the short to medium term, but not Europe in the longer term, perhaps. And we can just move that on to the Schultz era, can't we? I mean, you have had comments in recent times about if we don't see Europe sever its ties with energy, then what's the immediate need for other countries on the other side of the world to do the same? And this is the problem as we talk about people still buying Russian energy because Europe won't stop, other countries won't stop either. So it continues. And there's a revisionist form of history, which I'm absolutely hating at the moment. Well, we didn't know what Putin was like. He's changed during the last couple of years. That suits a lot of top politicians across Europe to say why they've shown inaction up until this point. But as far as I can see, Chechnya, uh, Azkabia, Abkhazia, uh, Transnistria, um, what we've seen in Aleppo, all kinds of incidents. 2014, the little green men. There were a whole host of signs a long, long time ago of what Vladimir Putin has been acting like, conducting his policy on a certain level as well. Um, uh, for more on Sylvia's coverage, mind you, of the latest uh, swath or swathe of EU sanctions against Russia, head online to CNBC.com. Jeff, let me hand it over to you. Yeah, let's focus on the Federal Reserve here because it was a torrid day in the markets yesterday with the uh, Nasdaq down very sharply off 2%. And obviously the Dow had a big decline day as well here. All this on the back of uh, Fed-related comments. The US Federal Reserve Governor Lael Brainard signalling the central bank may look to more aggressive monetary tightening. Her comments helped send equity markets lower. 10-year Treasury yields hit their highest level in nearly two years. And there was a lot of commentary on the mortgage rate, which uh, popped over 5%. Later today, the Fed is set to reveal the minutes from yesterday's uh, policy meeting. Uh, Brainard said, um, the, the, sorry, the last policy meeting, Brainard said that monetary policy will normalise through a combination of interest rate rises and a possible rapid reduction in the bank's balance sheet. It's of paramount importance to get inflation down. Accordingly, 
the committee will continue tightening monetary policy methodically through a series of interest rate increases and by starting to reduce the balance sheet at a rapid pace as soon as our May meeting. Given that the recovery has been considerably stronger and faster than in the previous cycle, I expect the balance sheet to shrink considerably more rapidly than in the previous recovery with significantly larger caps and a much shorter period to phase in the maximum caps compared with 2017 to 19. That reduction in the balance sheet will contribute to monetary policy tightening over and above the expected increases in the policy rate reflected in market pricing in the committee's own projections. I expect the combined effect of rate increases and balance sheet reduction to bring the stance of policy to a more neutral position later this year to the full extent of additional tightening over time, depending on how the outlook for inflation and employment evolves. Leo Brainard there. Well, but just a day or so ago, I think we heard Jamie Dimon expressing his concern about the economic outlook for the United States. Now, uh, Leon Cooperman um, adding his name to the list of uh, the great and good who are worried. He gave CNBC a highly critical take on the Fed's recent performance and its impact on markets. I'm long oriented, so I do better when the market does well. But uh, I think the Fed has totally missed it. And I think that uh, we have a lot of wood to chop. And I would think the price of oil or the Fed will push us into a recession in 2023. It's not written in stone, but I think that would be my guess. And I think some increasingly large parts of the market are are showing that persuasion. Brainard's comments really firing an arrow into the heart of risk appetite. You can see how it played out for markets, uh, particularly around the tech sector. Stocks have been bid up on the course of the past couple of weeks or so on hopes that we will see this area shielding a lot of investors from any potential recession. But still, the scenario of much tighter rates and balance sheet reduction for an industry that's still relying on cheap capital at this point to grow. You can see 2.2% down for the Nasdaq. Also, don't forget a day earlier, we had that move higher on Twitter around the Elon Musk ownership. So there were some various factors that impacted the FANG Plus stocks that uh, just faded, as you could see in session yesterday. But the S&P pulling back with the Nasdaq, one and a quarter percent down, eight tenths down on the Dow. So reversal taking place for all major markets. And it was uh, the consumer discretionary part of the sectors that fared the worst, down more than 2%. Utilities more resilient. It was the best performer, actually trading a fraction higher at that point. I want to take you to what we've got on Treasury markets. And you can see the reaction uh, before Lael Bryan was talking, we saw the yield trading much lower by about nine basis points lower on the day, 2.46 it was at. Brainard made her remarks about QT and uh, interest rates. We got up to 2.55%. And you can see we've marched even higher in trade today, 2.62 where we approached. So we are, we are escalating around to these peaks that we've not seen since 2019. The Inverted yield curve, well, you can see there's been a little bit of movement there with that escalation in the 10-year. We're now sitting perched slightly above that short end, the two-year 2.59. So we've eked out a three basis point improvement here uh, at the long end, the 2.78 on the five-year versus the 2.63. We're still inverted there on the five and the 30. So just worth bearing in mind, uh, a lot of people are very much watching how much further we could rally 
on this yield. Let's take a look at the dollar. We have seen another leg high for the greenback. It uh, has had a couple of months where it's uh, stepped up fairly aggressively versus the major currencies. And again, on the back of this more hawkish commentary from uh, the second in command really at the central bank, it's had uh, an improving factor on the greenback dollar gaining versus the Chinese currency and the ruble. But you can see again some of the majors today. It is uh, still firmer versus the euro, although sterling trying to claw back some territory. And don't forget, the uh, Bank of England has been among the more aggressive central banks, early movers around uh, monetary policy. So those comments from the Fed may have some bearing on the Bank of England as well. Let's take a look at what we've got for commodity markets. We are seeing Brent trading high this morning in contrast to WTI that is fading, tracking down just a fraction. Gold prices also on the back foot this morning. Uh, switching over to Asia, we've had a couple of markets out of action this week, and this is how we're trading today. You can see weaker right across the board, particularly Japanese stocks fading 1.4%, 400 odd points to the downside. Hong Kong, too, as we talk about, are fading around the tech rally. This does spill across to other markets, and Hong Kong, Japan, where you look for that impact. But uh, the commodities complex, you've seen a lot of resilience in recent days around that area, given the sanctions and the embargoes on Russia and fossil fuels and energy. You can see Australia not too bad in the mix of selling today, a bit more resilient at this point. Jeff. Yeah, thanks very much indeed, Karen. So we had some services numbers, uh, non-manufacturing data out of China indicating a rapid slowing into contraction territory. Is it all about COVID or are there other reasons why China's economy is grinding slower? Uh, We'll be right back. Stay tuned. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music and Google Podcasts. Back to Squawk Box, everybody. Further evidence then of China's slowing economy as a private sector survey showed the country's services sector is now in contraction territory. The Chinese services PMI slipped to 42 in March, down from 50.2 in February. That's the sharpest decline since the start of the pandemic. Uh, Chinese composite PMI, which includes both manufacturing and services, also fell into contraction, hit by rising COVID numbers as the government's zero policy uh, restricted movement and hurt demand. Let's get to Sam for more on this. Um, Sam, we've been monitoring um, consumer sentiment and spending for a long time here. Concerned, I think, that services sector data has been weaker than manufacturing. Can we ascribe COVID as the reason to this very dramatic slowdown? Or does this indicate that there was a broader weakening going on anyway? 
Good morning to you, Jeff. Well, I think we can largely put it down to this uh, lockdown-heavy, zero-COVID approach that the government has been taking, but it's also about a broader slowdown and also about those higher raw material costs because we've got to remember that we did see those commodities surging off the back of the Ukraine crisis as well, really throughout the month of March. And so we have seen those inflationary pressures really continuing for those smaller firms with some of those input costs continuing to rise. That did force a lot of those companies to actually pass those prices on and hike their costs. But not all companies really had the pricing power to do that. So that really weighed on, as I say, those smaller and private firms, which, of course, this survey does look at. So we did see the impact, certainly, of that. But really, this is just further evidence of that uh, tough zero COVID strategy that we've seen the government implementing, which has really seen a lot of these businesses shut down or shut temporarily and uh, really residents in major cities like Shanghai and Shenzhen confirmed to their homes. These cities are said to make up for some 20% of GDP. And of course, citizens have not been able to go out to places like bars and restaurants, which, as I say, are the kind of businesses and companies that this Taishin survey actually looks like uh, looks at. And so what we saw there uh, really was the smaller and private firms seeing conditions deteriorate a lot worse than the bigger and state-owned firms, which we got that data last week, which also showed a, a contraction, but it wasn't as bad. Uh, but we also saw the services sector, of course, performing a lot worse than the manufacturing side of things because it is far more vulnerable uh, to these lockdowns. And we did see areas like transport and catering and accommodation really feeling the pinch. So all in all, we have seen certainly a broad slowdown when it comes to manufacturing and the consumption picture as well. Jeff, back to you. Terrific. Uh, thank you very much indeed for that, Sam. Let's get to Ken Wong then. Ken is Asian Equity Portfolio Specialist at East Spring Investments. Ken, uh, good morning to you. Uh, let me ask a very dumb but straightforward question. How connected do you think the equity market performance in China is likely to be to these weakening economic numbers? Uh, should we stay away from Chinese stocks or do you feel it's worth investing? Well, a lot of the negatives uh, that's already we feel has been priced in into the marketplace. Because if you look at you know where the markets are trading at right now, in particular, you know when we look at the A share markets, A shares are trading roughly around eleven to twelve times forward earnings. If you look at MSCI China, they're trading roughly around ten times forward earnings. So a lot of that negative has been priced in. Uh, you look at the fact that Chinese equity markets have underperformed, you know, over the past 15, 16 months or so. And so a lot of the investor sentiment has been quite bearish for some time now with China. Now, obviously, with what's been happening in China over the past few weeks with the rising cases of COVID, um, that has created somewhat more of a negative sentiment and overall economic activities is definitely slowing down. And, you know, some of the some of the things that we're seeing right now is definitely, you know, somewhat unexpected because a lot of the uh, economic figures that we're seeing and some of the stuff that we saw, you know, sort of over the long weekend just really painted a bit more of a weakening as people are, you know, locked into their homes. There's there's very clearly some sectors that are struggling at the moment in China. We've talked ad nauseum about real estate. We've obviously talked a lot about technology and the government's uh, legislative onslaught on the technology sector. We're also seeing, uh, obviously, a lot of impact on um, primary manufacturing businesses from the Omicron story. 
how nuanced do you need to be with that investment strategy? And that where then would you think it's worth investing at this stage, given the clear challenge we've seen in obvious sectors? Yeah, at the moment, you know what we uh, what we expect to see sort of more medium to longer term is is that uh, the PBOC should probably be on a trajectory where they're going to lower their um, you know policy rates a bit further. Um, you know, the prime rates should actually go down a bit further with the uh, continual weakness of overall economic activities in China. Um, when we look at you know what's what are opportunities, we're still seeing particular in China, especially within the domestic A shares. There's a lot of positive policy effects, which will continue to really help stimulate some of the economies. And some of the sectors that we look at uh, include uh, electric vehicle related, solar power, renewables, um, specifically some of the consumption, uh, consumer discretionary sectors, which are going to be more driven and led towards, you know, sort of that push for uh, consumption. And then also at the same time, you know, we're manufacturing and in particular sort of technology related manufacturing. These are all still going to be sectors that, you know, we have our eyes on, especially given sort of where the opportunity set are and given the fact that, you know, we have seen, you know, quite a bit of pullback in some of these share prices over the past six to nine months. Ken, I want to talk about the role of China if there's a global recession, because uh, in the past we've seen a very supportive role from China stepping in when there's a, a hard landing or a downturn happening elsewhere. But, but this time around, is it different? We've seen uh, when the world has been in this crisis around supply chains that China has just uh, continued to embark upon its uh, zero tolerance approach around COVID, which has effectively seen big production hubs locked down, not providing the support we could expect from China. So is this time different because of very different factors around the pandemic? It, it, it's hard to say because ultimately, you know, our downside risk potentially for, you know, China seeing a five to five and a half percent economic growth this year was predominantly on two things. One, either the property sector, which, you know, remains to be fairly weakened, um, or specifically number two is around the COVID policies. Now, we know for a fact that what's going on right now in China um, in terms of the lockdowns is definitely having a, a very big negative impact. And so it'll be important to see, you know, over the coming few weeks, um, you know, what the PBOC might be doing, especially in regards to, you know, whether or not they're going to immediately try to lower their uh, the RRR ratios or specifically whether or not they're going to be lowering the loan prime rate uh, later this month as well. So these are going to be key initiatives that we're going to be trying to see from the PBOC, what type of monetary policies they're going to be doing. And then, you know, also on the other end to see whether or not there's going to be, you know, sort of further, um, let's say, policy initiatives, um, you know, from central government in order to really try to continue to meet that 5% GDP target growth for this year. Ken, thank you so much for joining us. We very much appreciate your expertise here. Ken Wong with Asia, Equity Portfolio Specialist at East Spring Investments. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.